What a joy it is to be here, Katya and I are so looking forward uh, to being with you and have been looking forward for a number of months to being with you. This is one of our favorite churches in the whole world. Um, we get to travel many different nations and see many different expressions of churches and I want to tell you, you guys are onto something. And uh, we're looking forward not only to be amongst you, but to receive from you, because there is a grace on you as a people, there's a grace on you as a family, uh, that when you hang out with hopers, you walk away with hope. Uh, when you hang out with people like you, you I, I find I walk away full of joy and excitement, and anything can happen, and it probably will. And uh, I want to give you permission to over-exaggerate the goodness of God. Amen. The Bible says that you'll do exceedingly abundantly above all you ask, think, or imagine. It's a biblical expectation that you over-exaggerate the goodness of God. Amen. I just love the story of that couple. Isn't it amazing? It's amazing. Gosh. Well, um, we're, we're going to be doing lots of stuff with you over the next month, and uh, I'm really trusting that... Uh, Something of the kingdom of God will be extended. Something of uh, a prophetic and apostolic grace will be released in the church so you can build some more um, over the next year. Um, And I want to talk to you this morning really about discovering apostolic DNA. Discovering apostolic DNA. And I'm talking to you as an apostolic church. The word apostolic means a sent people. A people who are sent to change culture. A people who are sent to change their world, are people who are sent to extend the kingdom of God, are people who are sent to release signs, wonders, miracles. I'm going to carry on until you're happy. Signs, wonders, miracles, wherever you go. You are a people who are sent on mission. And uh, I want to talk a little bit to an apostolic people this morning, if I may. So it's not going to be nice and warm and gooey, but I want to be a little uh, uh, stirring this morning because I believe the church, this church and the church worldwide, is getting ready for a significant era change. And when you understand the difference between era and seasons, you understand that seasons come and go every year. We know when it's winter. We know when it's summer, well in South Africa you know when summer comes. Um, you know when it's spring, you know, you know the seasons, they come regularly at each time of the year. You know, you, you can tell by the changing colours of the tree that seasons are about to change. And you expect particular things to happen in those seasons, don't you? God is a, a farmer. He loves to express himself as a farmer. He says what you sow you reap. He talks about understanding the seasons that you're in so that you get the maximum benefit of the season that you are in. So you want to sow in the right season so you can reap in the right season. Right? You don't want to be silly and miss the moment, which is why it's important and why Jesus says to the Pharisees that you can read the natural seasons, but you do not have any ability or depth to read the spiritual seasons, and therefore you've missed the day of your visitation. It is possible to be in a church like this and still miss your moment with God. (laughs) You've got to be a people who are positioned and postured, looking for the seasons in which God works so that you can sow into that season and reap from that season at the same time. But an era is different from a season in that an era breaks into the life of a season and defines the next chunk of time by a significant event or a significant mind change or a significant paradigm shift. 
And so when you think about the reformation that came, it broke into the normal working of life, it broke into the normal humdrum of life, into the normal seasons of life, but that paradigm that we are saved by grace through faith, not of our own works, shifted everything for the church, and we are now recipients of that glorious grace a few hundred years later. It was an era change. Something definitive marked that season of time and an era was changed. We've crossed over into something new. The industrial era. You know, we've been doing farming a particular way in seasons. The industrial age comes in and farming takes on a whole new dynamic as machinery gets released on farms. And suddenly, what would have taken us years is now taking us months to package and send across the earth. Right? It was an era change. The industrial age was an era change. Uh, the technological age. We now, at the tip of our fingers, have access to just about any kind of fact or a piece of information that we could ever want. Within a few moments, we can Google something and get information that would normally have taken months or years to find. But because an era defined a season, everything changed. And I want to say to you, we are in an era-defining season. That everything is changing for the church, and it is moving from an ecclesiastical or a church mindset to a kingdom mindset. It means that everything is going to be upgraded, everything is going to be accelerated, and everything's going to change. The one thing you can be sure of is change is here to stay. And the Bible uses two different words for time. It uses the word chronos, which is the word for measured time, which goes from 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock. And then the word kairos, which is the opportune time, or the time in which an opportunity breaks open and you accomplish more in that opportune time than you would at any other time ordinarily. And the Bible says that Jesus, this is the great thing, comes at the Kairos moment. He is birthed, he's born at the Kairos moment in the fullness of time. Just at the right moment, Jesus comes and he acts as a portal and opening a moment of time that we enter into him so that he is now our perpetual Kairos moment. In other words, <laughs> in other words, when we're in him, more things are accomplished from the place of rest and in being in him than our trying through our own efforts or our own seasons. He has become our kairos forever. And when you begin to understand that we're moving from one season to another, we have to then position ourselves to do that. And so I want you to turn to John chapter 20 very quickly. John chapter 20. And we're going to read from verse 19 because God wants to unlock and cause us as a community to rediscover what it means to be an apostolic people, what it means to be a saint people, what it means to be a people who dynamically shift cultures, release the kingdom, and take a whole geography for him. We, the city of Glasgow is too small for what God wants to do with you. John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is in the book of John, 
The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Imagine what that must have been like. Doors are locked, there's nowhere in, nowhere out, and suddenly Jesus walks through the wall and goes, how you all doing? <laughs> and Jesus said to him, peace be with you. I would need to get that message too at that point. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness of anyone, it is withheld. I love the scripture because the book of John, or the gospel of John, is a story of new creation. When you read the Gospel of John, it's important that you read it through a particular lens because it is a book of new creation and signs and wonders. Um, It's a book filled with incredible clues that is helping the reader understand that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who has come to establish God's kingdom on the earth. And so John is a kind of allegorical picture of what was happening in the Garden of Eden. And so John starts off much like Genesis starts off. In the beginning was the Word. And we see that this is a direct correlation and he's wanting the reader to understand that there is a connection to the garden in the Garden of Eden and and to the garden in the Garden uh, of the Book of John. You'll see that a large proportion of the discourse of Jesus' death, resurrection, and before he dies is all happening in a garden. And he's wanting you to understand that what was lost in the Garden of Eden is restored in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's an incredible principle when you understand this. And so you begin to see something of the parallels. Even the first seven miracles speak of the first seven creative miracles that God did through creation. And the last miracle that you see in the book of John The eighth miracle, which is the number of new beginnings, is the resurrection of Jesus. It speaks of newness of life. It speaks of this is a resurrection moment. And so we've come to this text and we see in this text that it says on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, it's been eight days since the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, or death and resurrection of Jesus. And the gospel writers wanting us to understand this moment here is a new creation moment. He's wanting to underline this is the eighth day, the first day of the week, eighth day uh, in in creation language was the day when creation began to work itself out after it had been created. And so what he's wanting us to understand is that this is a moment of new creation, this is a moment of new life, this is a moment of resurrection life breaking out upon the people of God. And we see that what was lost in the Garden of Eden is restored in the Garden of Eden in this context. And the first thing I love is a little bit earlier, you'll see that Jesus appears to Mary as a gardener. How many of you know the first original mandate that God gave to man was to be gardeners? Our older brother Adam was a gardener. He was called to extend the garden of Eden, Eden meaning pleasure. God was, in his design of the earth, has always intended that our life flows from the place of pleasure. <laughs> That's a good point, Julian. <laughs> and so 
He creates a garden of Eden, a garden of pleasure. He says, you see this garden? I want you to cover the whole earth with it. And he commissions Adam and Eve as gardeners to cover the earth with his pleasure. Don't you like that? That's the whole point of your existence, to release the pleasure of heaven wherever you go. And God's original intent is still his intent. He still desires that a, the earth, the guarding of the Lord, would be covered with his glory like the waters cover the sea. God's desire is that you and I have now become walking ark bearers, glory carriers, so that wherever we go, we extend the kingdom of God and release his glory. The reason why you're seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ is because that's the place his pleasure flows from. At his right hand are pleasures... Man alive, I'm getting happy. <laughs> and so we see this that suddenly Jesus is the picture of our older brother, our new older brother. Where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus is in this garden as the resurrected one, the one who redeems everything. And I love this. We see him redeeming this picture of Adam. Adam is redeemed. Mankind is now redeemed. He's the firstborn of all creation that, that has resurrection blood flowing through him. Very soon, in a few days after this, there's going to be a sense of the glorification of his body and, and, and there'll be for the first time a protocol, a prototype of what humanity will look like. They'll be glorified, clothed in the very glory of God with physical flesh and wherever they go, They'll extend God's kingdom. And the reality is that right now in heaven, there's a physical man called Jesus with a glorified body. And that's why we have access there now. It's not because it's some reality that's out there. No, no, it's a real reality right here that we simply enter into as we become more aware of heaven than of earth. And not only that, I love this. Oh. Ladies, get ready for this. This is going to be fun. We're ready. We're... Good. Where Eve lost her standing as a woman in the Garden of Eden by leading man into sin, God redeems women in the Garden and says to Mary, you have the high privilege of being the first witness to the resurrection and for the first time you get to declare apostolically that Christ is risen and he is Lord. The first apostolic witness of Jesus was not a man, it was a woman. You guys like that, don't you? You're restored right back to the same thing. And Jesus was doing that intentionally. It wasn't just Mary kind of looking for a, a body late, uh, late one morning. No, no, Jesus was intentionally wanting to say something. I'm given because she wasn't even allowed to be a witness in court. <laughs> God chooses this lady. And do you know what he does to the disciples? He rebukes them for not believing her witness. Didn't some women say amen, yeah, it's good. <laughs> Not only that, but the sense of fathering gets restored in this garden. A little bit earlier, he says to Mary, he says, do not cling to me, for I'm going to my, I'm going to my father. And he says, he says in, in verse 20 and, 20 and 17, he says this, um, 
But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to my God. For the first time in Jesus' discourse with his disciples, he calls his father their father. It's been restored. Everything that was lost is being restored. And I love that about Jesus and I love how he does that. I love how he enjoys restoring us right back. He's an older brother who loves to give his inheritance to us. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Yeah. And then not only that, I love this. He says that the verse says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, again, it's a reference right back to the Garden of Eden, where in the evening, in the cool of the day, in the wind of the day, Adam and Eve would walk with the Lord. And the wind that he's spoken about, or the cool, sometimes it's translated as wind or cool of the day, is the word ruach in the Old Testament, and it's the word ruach over here. It's an interchangeable word speaking of the Holy Spirit, speaking of his ability to bring life. And so in this context, he breathes on them. The very life that was lost in the Garden of Eden is now restored to them so that resurrection life pulsates through them and the spirit become alive to God again. And he ruach on them. But the difference is, and this is the beauty of this text, under the old covenant in the old garden, the Holy Spirit only walked with them. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit now dwells in us. We're getting better than what the Garden of Eden had it. Don't know about you, but that's a good point. It means I now live with the perpetuating overflow of resurrection life in me. In a moment, we're going to probably break bread. And for many of us, we approach the breaking of bread through the lens of death. When the Bible explicitly says that the breaking of bread is not simply about the death of Jesus, but about the resurrection of Jesus and his soon coming return. Because the cross deals with my old nature and my old man, but the resurrection life of God, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach that he breathes on his disciples, empowers my new nature so that I can live it out to the full glory of God. What was lost in the garden is restored in the garden. And Jesus says to the disciples, peace be with you. I love this word peace. It's the word shalom. Let me tell you what it means. One theologian describes it like this. The concept of shalom is expressed in the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than a mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. You see, the commission that they get comes from a place of rest. Shalom. 
I want to remind you, you are seated in Christ Jesus. You're not walking around and pacing the courts of heaven trying to get something from God, but you're comfortably seated in the resurrected Lord because he said it is finished. New creation is now being released on the earth. In fact, when Jesus says that on the cross, it is finished. It is a reflection of what happened in the garden when the Father sat down and said, it is good. Creation can now cover the earth. And when Jesus said it is finished, he was alluding right back to the Garden of Eden, saying it's done. The new creation is going to break out all over the earth. And you and I are called to be carriers of new creation. We're called to be carriers of this shalom, this peace. And the thing about the Hebrew mindset is nothing is ever separate from God. The only thing that is separate from God is sin. In the Hebrew understanding, everything is holy to God. Your work is holy, holy, holy to God. Can you say amen? Amen. (laughs) Some of you I can't say amen. It's not that holy. Your fun is holy, holy to God. Your family and how you relate to one another is holy, holy to God. It's why we need examples of good families in this day and age because they represent something of what heaven's like. And the understanding of heaven and earth being separated came through Augustinian thinking that separated the spirit from the physical. When actually heaven has always been intertwined with everything that we do because everything that we see was created out of that realm which is unseen. And when you live from a paradigm of God's kingdom and heaven coming to earth, shalom begins to be the umpire of your heart and helps you through some very difficult circumstances that you get peace in that moment that passes your logical understanding. Because your hope and your peace is not situated on that which you see, but on that which is unseen, because that's eternal and will soon swallow up this reality and all things will become new. So he says, peace be with you. And this is incredible. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. You need to understand that what Jesus was saying in this context is so controversial, it's so scandalous, it's so outrageous that we should do a double take every time we read this verse. He was saying, you now fully represent the Father even as I represented the Father in my earthly ministry. Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. And then he says, I'm sending you as the Father has sent me. I am a full representative. You are sometimes going to be the only representation of a good Papa, of a good Heavenly Father to a lost and dying world. You're it. As the Father has sent me, so I sent you. You are a full representation of the Father to a lost and a dying world. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, that word sent is the word apostello. It's where we get the word apostolic from. You, you, are, you have been apostolized, yeah. <laughs> authorized and deputized yeah. <laughs> to represent the one that you've been sent from. I'm going to pretend like you're getting this because it should start revival. It means 
that your workplace sooner or later has to come under the rule and reign of Jesus. It means that your place of influence sooner or later, because you are there, has to be turned upside down, inside out, as you reveal the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, do you know who and whose you are? Do you know who you represent? Because if you get to know who you represent, boldness is not an issue then. I represent the king of the world. So do you. You've been sent even as Jesus has been sent. That means the same resource, the same power, the same authority, the same anointing, the same miracle-working power that changed the whole of the Middle East. Chica Bazooka. Somebody please get this. You are an apostolic community. There's now not just one Jesus located in the Middle East. There are now hundreds and thousands of Jesus represented on the earth, demonstrating his power. That is why you are called little Christs. That's what it means to be a Christian. We're an apostolic community. We've been sent by God. Now listen, how was Jesus sent? And I want to quickly run through some of these. It's important for us to understand how we're sent in order to fulfill our mission. Firstly, Jesus was sent from the place of relationship. Notice he says, my father has sent me. This whole thing is relational. If you think it's functional, quit. Because you'll burn out, you'll dry up, and you'll get fed up with God sooner or later because he's not going to pay you as much as you think you're worth. If you think this is a job, if you think this is a function, brothers and sisters, you've missed the whole point. I'm about King's business because he happens to be my dad. And I want to extend his kingdom wherever I go because of that. I'm about my father's business. He just happens to be the king of the universe. It comes out of relationship, brothers and sisters. It means that I don't function depending upon the naughty badges or notes of approval I get from other people. It means that my position is securely bought and securely paid for in the person of Jesus so that I don't ever have to worry. And then my posture is one of servanthood because he's good and wants to bless the world. You've been sent from a place of relationship. It comes from the Father. And I want to tell you, the true hallmark of genuine apostolic communities is not more churches planted, is not more works established, it is the releasing of sons and daughters to change the world. And if you want to look for what an apostolic community looks like, you look to heaven, not to some organization, not to some business. You look to heaven, and heaven sends a son. This is going to be an apostolic community. Sons and daughters need to be raised up and released. Jesus is sent to bring transformation to the culture. Listen, Jesus was on the hugest cross-cultural mission that the earth has ever seen. He passes through time, space, eternity to get to planet earth, and he brings with him the culture of heaven. 
And so wherever he goes, things are turned upside down. He treats sinners with delight. Oh, we need to learn that one. We need to learn that one. The primary revelation he comes with is of a good papa. My dad's good. Look at what you can do. Look at how you can change your life. It's such a simple gospel. I wonder if over the years we've so intellectualized the gospel that we've missed the heart of revealing the Father and the result is powerlessness in the church. Brothers and sisters, you are called to be a people who come in to change the culture, not to your personal culture. I'm glad you all like haggis. (laughs) But we're not going to teach the world how to eat haggis, thank God. I'm not here to teach you what it means to be the best rugby team in the world. I don't want to do that. That's my culture. I'm here to represent heaven's culture. And heaven's culture does not look like your church tradition. It does not look like your favorite worship band. It does not look like your favorite evangelistic strategy. It looks like relationship. As you have study people, the cross-cultural demonstration that you are called to bring is one that draws people into family. <laughs> That's what's going to make you unique. That's what's going to save a lost in a dying world. I must press on. Not only that, he is sent with heavenly resources. Oh, wait, hold on. Before I get there, sorry. One of the biggest things that the church is going to have to overcome is what I call the middle-class maze. What's happening in the church is that we have all got so good at prosperity. Hallelujah. We've all been blessed, got nice homes, really nice things, that we get caught up in a maze of self-satisfying, me-orientated gospel. When God's calling us to be a people who provide the solutions, not just the protest. And so you can do your anti-gay thing and wave a flag and shout and you don't like homosexuals. I actually do because Jesus loves them. But until you learn how to provide an answer to those poor people, to people who are struggling in need, there's no way... You can be anti-immigration and all that stuff, but if you're not going to provide an answer, anti-abortion, but if you don't want to adopt. For some of you, it can mean that you don't downsize your house and actually you invite the person in this church who doesn't have a mom and a dad, the young girl who doesn't know what it's like to have a good dad, invite them into your house so you can be a good couple so she will marry someone who will look after her. I mean, some of you are not going to downsize because actually you're going to provide hospitality for broken and hurting people. I, got, I met a couple just two weekends ago. They're in their mid-60s, uh, I think it is. And they've got a huge house in a very posh area. And they take anyone in. And they just come and stay with them and love on them. They, this kingdom has to shift. 
Because if you want to really bring cultural transformation, it's more than just hanging out with your black brothers. I'll move on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's sent with heavenly resource. Jesus comes with heavenly resource. The, the, the whole backing of heaven, the whole heaven's entire operation is backing Jesus. And heaven's entire operation is backing you. There is nothing that you lack for the call of God. No good thing do you lack concerning the call of God. He's given you everything pertaining to life and godly living. Everything that you need. It's all yours already. You don't even need to try and appropriate it. You just need to take it. And the thing about resource is that... Help me, Jesus, on this one. One of the key ways you'll know that you are free in understanding the resource of heaven... It's in the area of your finance. Oh, it's gone so quiet. So. Where's the amens now? Can I just say that your 10% is not going to save Glasgow? God bless your 10%, your tithe. Yay, God, but that's not going to make a difference to Glasgow. We need some people with brains who begin to think of million-dollar ideas who begin to think outside of the box, who begin to start resourcing kingdom with what they have now in order that when they are in the place of great influence, they are ready to rock and roll with what God's given them. Jesus had rich people supporting his ministry. Do you know that? (laughs) That's why he could wear seamless garments. It was a very wealthy garment. It's why they didn't tear that garment and they gambled for it. Because it was one of the wealthiest pieces of uh, attire that one could wear in the day. Brothers and sisters, all I'm saying to you is that please, go make your millions of pounds. Go. I'm a prosperity preacher, unashamedly. Shalom is another word for prosperity. But don't do it in a vacuum. Do it with an understanding of resource. And if you can't do it now, you won't do it then. If you aren't faithful with the resource that God's given you now, if you can't live in the place of faith, listen, I know this stuff works. Generosity works. I've, I've, this is, I'm a second generation Christian who's seen the hand of God move more. I can't even tell you how many times. I've seen food multiplication miracles. I've seen money appear. I've seen God break through. I've seen supernatural debt cancellation. God is good. And if you've got a problem with debt, please talk to someone. Don't be unwise. But here's the deal. God wants you to make some money so that you can begin to think in terms of resource. And I want to release millionaires in this room. I want to release people who begin to think outside the box. I want to release entrepreneurs. I want to release those who can work amongst the poor of the poor, the broken of the broken, to lift them up of the ash heap of life and put them in families. Because resource that we're going to need it's going to not only be connected to heaven, but it's going to be manifested in the physical. Jesus was sent with authority. I am tired of the church praying for more power when you've got all the power that you could ever have because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. 
What you need is a greater understanding of your authority. Jesus operated in power because he understood that he had been delegated authority to extend kingdom. The word authority there is the word exosia. It means the delegated authority. Power is the ability to act. It's the capacity to act. It's the, uh, 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 the strength that is needed to act. But authority is the permission to act. And God has given you permission to act. The reason why the devil cannot attack you is because he was stripped of his authority. Is he powerful? Yes, he is. But he was stripped of his authority at the cross. And the only reason why now he can attack you is because of your agreement with him by giving him permission to outwork his power in your life. He doesn't outwork his power in your life because he's got authority to do so. I mean, it's because you've given him the authority. When you give him the authority, power works, and it's exactly the same. The kingdom works on the principle of agreement. The word agreement is the word symphoneo. Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Wherever two or three agree upon touching anything, it shall be done. That word agreement is talking in the context of kingdom discourse. It's saying that when you symphoneo, when you make the sound that the kingdom is making, power is released on the earth. Symphonic, different sounds coming together to make the same sound. That's what agreement means. Are you making kingdom sounds? Are you agreeing with kingdom? Because God wants to release authority in you. Just two more and I'm going to be done. <laughs> Jesus is sent in the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, brothers and sisters, you and I are called to live in the dynamic overflow of friendship with the Holy Spirit. When last did you say, good morning, Holy Spirit? He is not the butler of heaven. He's not some entity waiting for your request. He is the orchestrator of divine kingdom activity. Because the kingdom is in the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus goes to demonstrate, he says the kingdom is here. In effect, what he's saying is, Holy Spirit's just turned up. That's what he's saying. My friend, the Holy Spirit is here. Things are going to have demons are going to start leaving now. People are going to start getting healed now. Lives are going to be changed now. And then lastly, as an apostolic people, you have to be sent. This is going to be so profound, it's going to rock your world. Are you ready for this? Get ready. Please make sure that you're trying from the upright position, your safety belts. <laughs> I'm securely fasting because this is going to rock your world. Jesus was sent with apostolic joy. He was sent with apostolic joy. The Bible says that he was anointed with the oil of joy above his companions. In other words, he was a happy man to be around with. We have released an army of lemon suckers to the world <laughs> who don't know how to enjoy him and then inviting people who are more depressed and unhappy than they are into this wonderful relationship, yet their countenance does not reflect anything of the goodness or the joy of heaven. 
It's why Jesus could hang out with prostitutes and why he could hang out with tax collectors because they liked his company. <laughs> this is the most profound apostolic truth. That the purpose that has been sent before us is joy. It's why Jesus endured the cross. Joy was the result. I had somebody come up to me and say, oh, Brother Julian, nice English brother, down south. I don't like your emphasis on joy. It's far too emotional. <laughs> At which point I said, that's because joy is not an emotion, it is a fruit. It's a fruit. And it happens to be expressed through happiness. And God wanted to make sure that we got the guilty. Blessed are you if you are pure in heart. That means ecstatically, blissfully caught up in God. Really, really, really happy. And that's all about emotions. God wants to make sure that you get it right in the emotions. And then he talks about the fruit of joy that grows irrespective of your circumstance. One translation talking about, you know that verse that says, counting all joy when trials and tribulations come your way. One translation says this, make it your natural calculation that joy will be the result of your tribulation. Wow. <laughs> you like that? And when you add the dots up together about everything that's going wrong in my life, joy is going to be the result. <laughs> we have got to be a community of joy. I'm on a mission to restore happy, clappy churches again. Yeah. We need some people who get really happy in God because the world is so jolly depressed. Have you read the newspaper this morning? Good, don't read it. <laughs> Joy releases freedom. And freedom is the hallmark of true apostolic churches. Listen to this. And I'm going to end with this, I promise. You know you are in a freedom culture when your adventure is not based on what you're allowed to do, but going as far as you possibly can. You know you are in a freedom culture when your adventure is not based on what you're allowed to do, but going as far as you possibly can. You know you're in a freedom culture when captivity is not the mindset, but radical freedom is. And this is what I mean by that. People can live in captivity and think they're free until they push up against a boundary. So that's what happens with lions in lion parks. They live like lions, they act like lions, they eat like lions, they roam like lions until they get up to an electric fence when their nose touches it, they know they're not really free. Most churches live like that because they've never explored the great and spacious land that God's brought them into. And they put little fences up. You can't be free, but you know, we need some boundaries. Listen, Boundaries take the place of Holy Spirit leadership. I'll move on from that one. You know you're in a freedom culture when accountability is not sin-focused, but destiny releasing. The lowest form of accountability is policing your sin. The highest form of accountability is calling destiny out of you. You know you're in a freedom culture when authority figures do not represent restraint, but empowerment. 
Lastly, you know you're in a freedom culture when perfection is not the aim, but delight is the aim. <laughs> Don't you like that? See, freedom is supposed to produce a sense of awe and radical abandonment to the purposes of God. You have been sent as a free agent. As an apostolic community to change Glasgow. The overflow of what God is doing with you is going to change the world around you. And so I want to encourage you, as over the next few weeks, as we come together, begin to think of yourself as an apostolic people. Don't think of yourself as a nice churchgoer and a pew warmer. Those are boring, and that day is over. We're stepping to a new era. And it's an era of God's kingdom coming, and the apostolic people of God extending his kingdom wherever we go. Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercies. We're releasing apostolic people in this church right now. We're releasing joy-filled, free, radical people in this church right now, God. We ask you that men and women would grab a hold of their new identity. At this new creation moment, will overwhelm them with the resurrection life of God. And so as the Father sent Jesus, so we're sending you. So we're sending you. So we're sending you.